Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Good morning, Anna. Absolutely lovely to have you with us at Food FM. I'm delighted to welcome Anna Taylor, who's director of the Food Foundation. Is that correct title for you, Anna? Well, executive director in theory, but really doesn't matter. (laughs) Probably have to do everything and have an awful lot in your inbox. (laughs) That probably is part of your title. So how long have you been there, Anna? Well, I've been with the Food Foundation nearly six years, in fact, but was the first employee of the Food Foundation. So we're six years old as an organisation next month. So um, yeah, that's I've been there since the start. Oh, fantastic. Well, happy birthday for, for next month. So and um, tell us about um, the origins of the Food Foundation. Uh, you know, it's great that, that you were there right at the very start. So what, were the, what was the thinking behind setting it up? What were the ambitions? I didn't found the Food Foundation. Um, that, uh, it, the idea, and it's the sort of brainchild, really, of um, Laura Sands, who had the idea when she was serving as an MP for an area in a constituency in Kent called Thanet and where she was seeing really quite um, up close in her constituents the impact that the food system was having on their lives and um, particularly for people that didn't have a lot of money and seeing the sort of health effects of the food system play out in their lives she's really and she was really um, she felt as an MP that there weren't really enough organizations that were getting cut through in Parliament in thinking about how you can drive systemic change in the food system and thinking about the the food as part of a system and what are the incentives in the system which are delivering these outcomes um, which are having such a, a negative impact on people's lives. So that's where her starting point was and she she set us up really to try and be the bridge between the creators of evidence. I mean, we, we, we do a fair bit of sort of data analysis of national data sets and things, but there's of course a huge uh, number of academics and researchers who are generating excellent evidence, but much of that evidence doesn't get communicated well to businesses and policymakers. And so we're at the interface really between the people that can make a real difference in the food system and the people who are generating evidence around the scale of the problem and what can be done about it. And we really try and um, communicate that evidence in ways which inspires those policymakers and those business leaders to act and uh, use the powers that they have to make change happen. So that's that's where we are. That's and we're we're a charity basically doing that work. That's that's wonderful. And what you know, what an amazing ambition. And it you know it chimes with so much that's that's sort of present in in our thinking and the media and so on uh, at this very moment, doesn't it? As we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Well, yeah. I mean, we've seen you know we've seen very clearly in the statistics in the UK um, how um, having a a, a a uh, heavy body weight puts you at much greater risk of being put in in hospital as a result of the pandemic. But you see that that's I mean, that's a, a problem that was there before the covid pandemic as well, because we know that having an unhealthy weight puts you at risk of a whole range of both communicable disease, infectious disease like like COVID and also non-communicable disease like heart disease and so forth. So, yeah, that absolutely. But COVID has 
has, I think, drawn attention to that and also highlighted the extent to which the UK has a, a particularly bad problem with overweight and obesity. And uh, yeah, I think it's certainly been an impetus for the Prime Minister to start to really think quite seriously about whether we've got the right mix of policies in place in the UK to try and tackle it. Yes, that's really interesting. But I think it's it's also highlighted the level of, of food poverty, hasn't it? Because I think so that's many right. more people have been tipped into food poverty by COVID. Yeah, I mean, we've been tracking this really, really um, carefully because, I mean, we, we went into the pandemic really having a, a fairly good grasp on the levels of food poverty in the UK. And we've done a, a year-long inquiry into understanding children's experiences of food poverty um, prior to the pandemic. So when we saw the first sort of lockdown start to play out, we quite quickly decided that we needed to track the situation very carefully. So since the first lockdown, we've done seven rounds of national surveys, uh, particularly trying to understand the circumstances of families with children. And yes, you're right. I mean, we've seen um, elevated levels of food insecurity, I mean, driven by a number of factors. So um, in the first, at the beginning, there was, of course, the shortages on the shelves, which for people with a kind of stock of food at home, perhaps didn't, I mean, was maybe a, a sort of slight inconvenience, but not a hugely dramatic event. But if you have nothing in the cupboard at home and you're, you know, moving from sort of a weekly paycheck to a food shop and you've not got, you know, you're using up your food at the end of the week, that's a pretty scary situation if you've not got any options about where else to get your food. So we saw the effects of the, 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 the shortages on the shelves in the first instance. Then, of course, the economic effects of the crisis in terms of people me, me, being moved on to furlough. And while, of course, furlough was a, an incredibly brilliant safety net, um, it did mean that you, people still took a drop in income. And if you're again, if you're on a very low income, that has an effect. Um, but of course, also a lot of people lost their jobs entirely. Um, and the other factor that COVID brought in was the sort of isolation factor. So for families that were shielding um, or were really anxious about going out and didn't want to go to the shops, this added a further problem if you've got very little money. Um, and we saw um, particularly um, households with somebody with a disability in the household, whether an adult or a child, we saw their levels of food in, of food poverty rise dramatically. I mean, it's really quite shocking statistics. So yeah, we've got a, a very serious situation. We went into the crisis with a serious situation. It's now been made worse. And of course, but what's happened through the course of last year is that the spotlight's really been shone on that problem. And um, obviously, Marcus Rashford has helped to do that um, in a remarkable way and I think really mobilised public concern around the issue and I think also many of us are now the sort of divide between people that are perhaps experiencing food poverty and people who've never experienced it, that divide which is pretty big is perhaps a little narrower, narrower whereas wealthier people now know people who are suddenly on universal credit because they've lost their their job and are struggling with with very little money. So hopefully public understanding is in a more positive space as well so that we can actually get some longer term solutions in place. Yes, that's absolutely fascinating, Anna. I mean, I was I think uh, your work and with Marcus Rashford and Marcus Rashford 
himself have just been extraordinary in raising child hunger to the absolute top of the list of public awareness. But how do you, as an organisation, how do you navigate the political waters here? Because we have to recognise that this government, you know, this party has been in government for 11 years. So it's not as if these issues are new. How do you, as a you say you describe yourself as sort of in the interface between the issues and politicians trying to influence policy. How do you navigate those waters? There's two elements, I think. There's first is is how we actually communicate the evidence and getting that doing that really well is is a task in and of itself. And what we try to do is combine good quality statistics that we gather from surveys with what we call people's lived experience. So the real stories behind the numbers, because people um, in power, you know, take in a problem and understand it using different bits of their brain. So for some people, a story is much, much more powerful, even though it relates to only one person than, than me saying, well, there are 2.3 million children living in households which are food insecure at the moment, you know, that. And so the, the sort of practical reality that if you've got if you're living in food insecurity, that means, and you're a parent, you are probably hiding the fact from your child because you don't want them to know the, the extent of the situation. So you're saying, don't worry, I'll eat later, and then you don't eat. Or you're saying, oh, this week we're gonna, you're going to go to the, this weekend, you're going to go to the grandparents because you know there's no food in the house and the money's not coming in until next week, but you know that you're that the grandparents will provide the kids with a hot meal. So the sort of day-to-day -day strategy. So we, what we try to do is, first of all, is package up that evidence in ways which tells people real, real, the real stories, but also demonstrates the scale of the problem. So that's a job in and of itself. And doing that in a way which tries to reframe the conversation, because we have had a sort of a history, really, of thinking about this problem in a very much a sort of blaming people for their circumstances. And this is about parental responsibility and everybody needs to pull their socks up and start, start looking after their children properly. There's that frame is very, very strong. And so trying to uh, present that people's stories in a way which explains that these par parents are doing everything they possibly can to protect their children, but they're, t they're, they're swimming against a tide which is just too strong for them in many instances. So that's that's one set of challenges. The, the politics is, I mean, very, I mean, obviously we've had sort of huge sort of swings in the um, political, you know, post the election. We've, you know, the, the political sort of landscape has shifted dramatically and, and the EU exit has all been part of that. Mm -hmm that story in the UK. I think I think what's what's interesting um, if you if you look back across the last year is that you've had quite uh, the the people who've come out passionately on this issue are from across the political spectrum, in fact, and I think that often is dependent on whether they are MPs, for example, who are really carefully talking to their constituents about the issue. I think it's very difficult if you're you know, I, I sort of, I suppose, I, I, I think intrinsically that, uh, you know, if you, if you're, if you've got somebody in front of you who's telling their story about their circumstances or food poverty, it, it can often be incredibly powerful in changing your preconceptions about it. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see the MPs that are really taking the time to understand the problems amongst their constituents are 
are often the ones that are prepared to come out and say, yeah, we really need to do something about it. It's not okay for this situation to be happening in Britain today. That's so interesting. It just just a couple of things come to mind. Um, and one is, I mean, I, I think, you know, everybody is shaped by their own their sort of upbringing, a family history, sort of, you know, that, that sort of oral history, aren't they? And my, my parents came from very different backgrounds. My father came from a very privileged background. And my mother did not. And I remember her father telling me he grew up in the East End uh, before the First World War. He was one of four brothers and they were known for always being hungry. And he told me that he and his brothers walked from the East End to Greenwich and they found fields of rhubarb and they stole the rhubarb and they ate it raw. And I was so horrified as this sort of sheltered little girl to think that, you know, a boy could be so hungry that he would eat raw rhubarb. I mean, I can't, it must have given him such tummy ache. And I've never forgotten that. So when I... When I hear about hunger, I, I think of that and it really affects me very deeply. It, it just seems like something that happens to other people, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, teachers have, have told us when we were doing this big inquiry into children's food poverty that children were stealing food from bins in schools. I mean, oh. it, this is not, so this is not something of latter years, you know, I no. mean, it, it's happening, it's happening now. And even in those extreme, you know, in those extreme sort of situations, so... Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the you're, you're right. It's the stories which stay in people's heads and help people to contextualize what they hear. Um, and that's why getting people and that's why Marcus Rashford's story was so powerful, because he was basically saying my mom was doing two or three jobs. And so he told a story of, you know, that this is a work, you know, this was a working family and still there wasn't enough money to put enough food on the table and and knowing what that was like and seeing his mum struggle it kind of cut through you know it, it wasn't like he was a sort of celebrity champion that had been I don't know co-opted by a charity to do, you know we 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 we've ne- we're now working alongside him but we didn't know him before he wrote, he wrote his first letter to MPs citing our data and I had never heard of him. I mean, I'm not a big football kind of fan, but I'd never heard of him until that moment. And the phone started ringing in the Food Foundation. <laughs> they were like, this, this letter's gone to MPs. It's, it's citing all of your data, you know, tell us. So obviously Marcus's commitment to this issue has just come from his own really genuine personal experience and his concern about, you know, trying to trying to see the issue, the issue addressed. And I think that authenticity is just massively powerful and he's shown that it is over the last year no it, uh, wonderful and and how fantastic that suddenly you know the spotlight was shown on your work what a great a great opportunity yeah. for you but i mean a, a pressure as well but an, a good one yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah. and yeah I, mean, I think what we've that we've tried to do is just really you know make sure that the evidence is there in in all the different ways that needs to be communicated and he's done a, a really really remarkable job of communicating it so powerfully yes absolutely I mean I think I think one of the things that um you know lots of people will be and I'm sure you hear it all the time Anna and it must um annoy you intensely everybody's very good at pointing out the problems and slightly less effective at pointing out the solutions tell me about how how you're looking at issues of food chains is that something that comes into your remit and how how we can shorten food chains so that we have greater food security in this country and we're less reliant on bringing food in from around the world which obviously adds to cost and so on yeah i mean we we think about it so we tend to think about the issues particularly through a sort of inequality lens and if yet but yes those issues link into that so what we've we've put a lot of energy into is um thinking particularly about fruit and veg so if you look at how the different 
ways in which people in Britain eat um, across the income spectrum, the biggest difference between if you've got money or if you haven't got money in terms of what you eat is whether you eat fruit and veg. So, and, and when we talk to low income households, they say to us, it's a luxury, basically. The priority is filling tummies. You do that by buying very cheap calories and that tends to not have fruit and veg. And in fact, what, you know, people will say, well, we hide away the fruit bowl or we don't have a fruit bowl. If we get fruit, you know, it's a big deal having a fruit bowl on the table so that the children can take it when they want it. Um, that's a that's a big luxury. So we've put a lot of attention into looking at the con, you know, the supply chains of fruit and veg, prices of fruit and veg. What's the sort of story around fruit and veg in the UK? And it's it's interesting because it's also of the food that we consume. It's the part of the diet that we're most heavily dependent on imports for. So um, about. 85% of our fruit, that the fruit that we eat is not grown in the UK and about 45% of the veg that we eat is not grown in the UK. Yes. So we're very, very heavily dependent on imports. Now, there's a kind of an interesting story in all of that, because, of course, if you think about fruit, we, we've gone kind of more and more exotic over the last 30 years. So we're eating mangoes and pineapples now in a way that we, we haven't done historically. And in some ways, that's a good thing because it means that it's getting us sort of excited about fruit. In other words, you know, if you if you all you can eat every day is apples, you're going to get a bit bored of apples and end up not eating enough fruit. Whereas if you've got a variety, you're going to kind of you're likely to eat more because you'd be kind of excited by that diversity and the opportunity that that brings. So exotic stuff's not well, not in and of itself a bad thing. But then when you look at the where we're sourcing our fruit, our, our fruit and veg from and the impact that climate change is having on those countries and the water footprint of some of that fruit and veg, it tells quite a concerning story, and and um, and 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 one which points to the fact that our supply chains often for for imported fruit and veg are, are not very resilient. And we've seen little snippets of that over, in recent years. You know, when sort of the courgette crisis hit sort of Spain, and we've got um, suddenly there's no courgettes on the shelves or whatever. This kind of thing, we've kind of got a bit of a flavour of that. So I think, um, so there's an interesting set of questions around, and, and historically horticulture, you know, growing fruit and veg has been a pretty neglected area of agricultural policy. I mean, we've, we've been running the, the European Union's common agricultural policy in Britain until we you know, left the EU, that's starting to change now. But that has historically not really supported fruit and veg growers in the same way as it has um, livestock and cereal growers. And so we've now, I think, in a situation where we can look in a much more strategic way to think, right, we've got nobody's eating enough fruit and veg. If you're on a low income, you're even eating even less. We're also not growing very much in the UK. And there's a bunch of crops that we could grow a lot more of. We could be much more competitive in the UK and compete with those imports. So there are things like, you know, pears, which we can grow a lot more of in the UK, which we're currently very, very import dependent on. And a, a bunch of other crops where you could extend the growing season a little bit, for example, and reduce reliance on imports. So without going down the route of kind of tons and tons of heated greenhouses, which is also not a particularly um, great strategy in the context of of climate change. So so I think there's there is some real opportunities to think and, and could if you invested in that way in, in British horticulture, could you also 
you know, make British produce competitive with imported, potentially also smooth out some of those sort of price um, differentials, which have, we know have such a, um, a knock on impact on those on the lowest income. And also think of sort of more creative ways, as you say, of shortening that, those supply chains and creating a greater connection between the growers and us as sort of eaters of, of fruit and veg. And again, the COVID crisis has sort of seen this sort of mini kind of revolution in people wanting to go straight to farms and order a veg box. Um, I mean, we did a survey of farms that provide veg boxes. And there was this massive increase during during lockdown of, of demand for those schemes. And they, of course, also bring other benefits in terms of you know, greater connection and a sense of valuing food and where it comes from and knowing the far the farmer and and you know potential knock on impacts on waste reduction. You know, there's all these kind of virtuous stuff that goes alongside that. Having said all that, um I think we also need to be aware that, you know, we're never going to grow bananas in the UK and nor should we. And you know that that imports is part of our fruit and veg story. The question is striking the right balance and really optimizing environment and health outcomes and and cost to make sure that we can all eat as much of it as we possibly can without and increasing the environmental protection as we go. That's so interesting, Anna, and it's so many questions that I want to ask and so many sort of comments add in. But I wonder if, you know, we'll look back in 20 or 30 years time and say, oh, my goodness, we used to have bananas in the UK. I wonder if attitudes will change so much. I mean, just to sort of give a little a sort of parallel, you know, I mean, I think attitudes to zoos are starting to change. You know, having a zoo was not a, a very very controversial thing but now people yeah. wonder about it and I think yeah. you know children now learn about animals from watching you know DVDs and TV and so on and um, we don't need to have a giraffe in a zoo in Lincolnshire yeah. um, so That's... it might be I'll say well my goodness once upon a time people did eat bananas but now we have apples and pears because we grow them here yeah yeah you're right I mean that 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 may happen I think perhaps what's likely to happen faster than that that shift is in the UK is um, thinking differently about junk food. I mean, I think this sort of emerging science around, you know, the damage which junk food is doing, the, the, our reliance on it now, the extent to which it's sort of taken over our diets. I mean, 50% of our of the calories that we eat come from foods which are high in fat, sugar and salt. The, the extent to which we're relying on these foods and the really serious health consequences of this kind of diet and the sort of emerging science about exactly what it is about these foods which are are damaging i think we i think we could be in a situation where our kids are perhaps saying to their kids oh when i grew up you know we used to eat this sort of stuff in packets that was you know really sweet and you could eat you know and you kind of get a bit addicted to them and that was kind of normal and you know we had we we had we had them that we it wasn't just for treats we kind of had that stuff most days and um but that was sort of how we ate isn't that a funny thought that we were doing we were eating in a way which was so damaging to our health even to our children's health um i think i sort of feel instinctively that that's the shift that will happen 
before the banana one, but who knows? I mean, <laughs> uh, this, uh, the environment, you're right. The environmental story is uh, the environmental sort of imperative is so pressing now that it could go. I mean, that's what's interesting about food, right? You've got this sort of health and environmental story so interwoven in different aspects of our diet. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that also occurred to me when you were uh, speaking earlier was that, you know, I think a lot of the, the big push for change is actually coming from supermarkets. I see that. And, you know, I mean, just not enough. I mean, obviously, um, but things like, you know, Tesco having free pieces of fruit for children. Mm. I mean, it does make fruit more accessible. But the other thing in, in tandem with that is also um, food deserts. And I think that's yeah. such an issue for people who have very little money is they often live in areas where there is so little access to fresh fruit and vegetables. It's a long way to the supermarket. They don't have a car. They'd have to carry heavy bags back. It's the whole yeah. thing sort of conspires against them. And if they go to their local corner shop, there might be, you know, one withered apple and a mouldy lettuce. That's right. And it'll be expensive. Yeah. Uh, actually, something like, I think in the next five years, 5,000 corner shops are destined to go interesting because of yeah. online shopping yeah I mean it's a you're right the whole I mean in fact in some ways they're sort of deserts of for healthy food and they're swamps of often really unhealthy food um, and you see this very strong correlation between areas of deprivation and for example density of fast food outlets so um, it's um, it's a that's right. I mean, you've basically got this sort of double whammy. If you've not got much money, you've got the first problem of being able to afford healthy food. But then you've got this other problem of the sort of environment around you, which is, as you say, conspiring against you. And I, I was I looked at saw a really, really interesting graph a couple of weeks ago that Rachel Griffiths from the Institute for Fiscal Studies have produced, which showed the uh, trends over time of the sort of cost of ingredients, the cost of getting food that's prepared outside, so like a takeaway or whatever, and the cost of time and preparation. And when you look at the graph, you realise how entirely rational it is for people that are working and have very precious li pre pressured lives in terms of time and not very much money or time, but it's a very rational decision often to go and get that pre-preferred food, whereas there's this sort of mantra that, you know, oh, if everybody cooked from scratch, you know, we'd solve all of our problems. That that may be so, but but it's entirely rational for people to be behaving in the way that they are because that's the way the economics is set up. And we've got to try and challenge, we've got to try and deal with the economics of the system such that it, it's actually that the healthy and sustainable diets are, are more like normal and default and the easiest. So yeah, the, I think you're, you're right to to say the sort of cons conspiring against us is a good way a good way of really putting it for particularly for people that are in disadvantaged circumstances and of course if you're in that situation also often food is the while you've got to think about it because you've got to put food on the table you're worried about you know are you going to lose your house or be evicted or you're worried that your child's getting bullied at school or you're worried about this you know you've got this sort of cognitive overload often when you're in very highly stressful circumstances which if you're in poverty those circumstances are very stressful and so you know to sort of then expect people to navigate I don't know to find the cheapest healthiest yogurt in us in the yogurt category when you're hit with you know 200 different types and 
uh, all the all the worst stuff's being heavily promoted to you. <laughs> you know, it's like completely unrealistic expectations of people. Absolutely, no, that's that's such a good point. Uh, Anna, I know we could talk for hours, but we sadly don't have hours today. <laughs> so I just want to, you know, finish talking about all the wonderful young people that you work with mm. and the Right to Food podcast. Just because I feel I, you know, I I really I get so upset when you hear people so you say dissing the young in this country I think they're amazing from my experience and I think you work with some wonderful young mm. people so tell me about the kind of work that you're doing with them and how that how they're going to drive change well we started off um uh, when I said that we were doing this work on understanding children's experiences of food insecurity and we 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 talked to we involved about 400 people 400 young people in those workshops and through the course of that work, um, about 15 of those young people sort of made it very clear to us that they were deeply committed to trying to change this this situation for other young people, not, not for themselves particularly, even though they'd all experienced different forms of deprivation over their, their lives thus far. And I have to say, I've been like, absolutely bowled over by their their bravery in terms of you know telling their stories new on numerous occasions in front of parliamentary committees civil servants the media you know uh, tv radio the whole i mean they've they've been in numerous situations on the one show telling their stories and and doing so with deep insights and uh, and telling the the talking about the problem in a way which um, is relatable and really helps to communicate what it really means to kids who are in these circumstances. The stigma, you know, is one of them. Tia has talked very passionately about the stigma that she's feels when she's you know on free school meals at school and is singled out you know she's there's there's been um they've been really really remarkable and and now we're we're sort of expanding the scope of that work with young people because we've realized how unbelievably powerful they are when they tell their stories and they they bring this insight which you know as you get older you kind of you talk about issues in a way which you know, you're reflecting the kind of frames that you're hearing in the political domain. You're you're talking about issues in sort of well, I find myself sometimes in kind of policy speak. And what the young people do is they have none of that baggage and they they just say it as it is and um in a very often a very fresh way, in a way which doesn't press but you're talking about politics earlier, doesn't sort of press buttons for different political it's sort of it's ideology free. It's just about the issue. <laughs> and um and I think that's that's what's very, very powerful about it. And what we're doing now, as I say, is is really working with expanding that that work to um the global level. Um because what we're interested to try and do now is really see whether we can help to ignite a global network of young people working with lots of other organizations in other countries who can start to be a very powerful voice for change at the global level and this year the, the, it's been prompted to happen right now because there are several global events that are happening this year that are concerned with food systems first of all the un food system summit's first time a food system summit will have been hosted by the united nations and all the governments of the world will be attending so it's a it's a really important moment and what we're trying to do is make sure that young people are given the stage to talk about the issues and that like um you know we're trying to get a real mix so british young people that are telling the story perhaps around 
food poverty, the sorts of things we've been discussing. Then you might have a young person from Brazil talking about the impact of food production on the Amazon and deforestation, or a young person from uh, Kenya talking about um, how junk food is starting to sort of really penetrate the different, even the rural areas of Kenya and the impact that that's having on children's diets. So a whole raft of different perspectives, but recognizing that our food system does operate at the global level. And many of the companies that are really, really important parts of that food system are operating globally. So some of those levers for change are not at the national level, but at the global level. So we're, we're really, I mean, we're really excited about it. Um, we've got an, a, an incredible group of, of young people who are, uh, as I say, across, across a number of countries and who have developed this act for change list of actions which they want to see governments and businesses act on. Um, and they're now at the moment consulting more young people to narrow down that list. I've got a list of 17 and we want to narrow it down. So allowing people to vote on five of them so that we can really see what the priorities of young people are across the world. And that can be then a kind of really collective list of actions that can be taken to the UN Food Systems Summit. So it's it's super exciting. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're just trying at the moment to really be behind the scenes, facilitating and doing what we can to help the young people to take the stage. How wonderful. What a lovely, hopeful point at which to close our conversation, Anna. Thank you so much. I have absolutely loved talking to you. I salute all the work that you and your colleagues do and all these wonderful young people. Thank you. Our pleasure. It's been lovely to chat, Caroline. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.